Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, how long have you got? Because we could spend all night and all tomorrow and all the next day putting forward the evidence to show that the Bible is, well, not only special, but it's unique. I want to limit it to just two uh, areas um, as we look at this. And first of all, we say here, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by over 30 people living in different locations over a period of 1500 years. And yet, it gives one consistent message. Now that in itself is not only special, it's unique, is it not? There's, there's no other book that can claim that sort of uh, that sort of things. More than that, I mean, my Bible is a cross-reference Bible. It has seventy thousand cross-references linking different books. So it's not a case of well, you can find links here and there. Seventy thousand, and and there are more than that. Let's just take one example. If we turn to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and this is the occasion when the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is speaking to two of his disciples who believe that he is still dead. And if we go in at verse 25, this is what he says to them. He said to them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I just want to put... Uh, a portion of that on, on the screen and this is just literally copied off my bible um, we see verse 26 there ought not christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at moses and in my bible there's little p there and if we go into the margin little p there it says Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, Genesis 12 verse 3, Genesis 18, 18, 22 and so on, and to Numbers and Deuteronomy. They're all possibly the places that Jesus went when he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But it wasn't just the writings of Moses, he says, and all the prophets. A Q there, reference Q, if we're going to the uh, references, Q, Isaiah 4, verse 2, Isaiah 7, 14, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Zedekiah, Malachi. Right, once again, these are all the places where these prophets, who lived hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus, spoke about him. And this in itself, is it not, uh, witness that the Bible is indeed unique. No other book can boast this sort of... Uh, occasionally, I mean, the writings of Shakespeare, you might find the odd reference at the bottom of the page to take you somewhere else. But, but nothing like this. I mean, every page 
references all the way down the middle there. And there are more, obviously. There are 70,000 references in my Bible uh, linking all the different books written by different people, written in different places, written at different times, and yet we've got this one consistent message. That's all I want to say about that, because I'd like to spend the rest of the time looking at another evidence. We call it here the amazing witness of Bible prophecy. And it's another example where it becomes obvious that this is none other than the Word of God, the one who knows the end from the beginning. I'm just going to skim through a few examples. We can't look at all the details of these, but just to show how many different types of prophecy there are in the Bible. I think many of us will be familiar with Daniel chapter 2. We've called it here 2,600 years of history foretold by Daniel. Now, from the position that we are in, we can look back at all this and we can see that what Daniel foretold, well, it was God that was foretelling it through Daniel, has indeed happened. Um, Daniel was living in the kingdom of Babylon. And from this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, Daniel was able to say to Nebuchadnezzar, you represent this head of gold. Following your kingdom, there will be three more kingdoms that will dominate Israel. That's why they're in the Bible, because Israel is the centre of God's purpose. And, and not only that, as we, as we go through down this image, we've got gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. There's something getting uh, diminishing here, isn't there, from gold right down to clay. And I think what Daniel is saying to the king is, each kingdom would have an inferior ruler when compared to its predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar, you are a head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's law was absolute. No one dared to cross him. No one dared to question anything that he said. And in that respect, his rule was a golden rule. We know, of course, eventually, the Lord Jesus Christ will reign like that, but not in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did. When we look at the Medo-Persian Empire, why, they had laws that could never be altered. <laughs> but they were altered. You see, the power and the authority of the rulers was less. And when we come down to bronze and iron, I mean, we come down to iron, that's, that's Rome, represented by the two legs. Why, the Senate was now in control, and if the Senate didn't like what the Emperor was doing, well, let's bump him off and get someone else. And we can see, can't we, eventually we come down to clay, <coughs> a mixture of iron and clay. And we live in the days of clay rulers. The power now is with the people. And if the ruler doesn't do what the people wants, the ruler knows he's not, he or she's not going to be around very long because we live in what we call democracy, a dem democratic age. So that's happened. And we, we could look at lots more details here, but we don't have the time to do it, really. Daniel said to the king, there won't be a fifth empire like this, but the fourth one will be divided 
had broken. And look at the history books. What happened to the Roman Empire, why it gradually disintegrated. But there's still part of it left now, because we live in the days of the feet of this image, which are a mixture of iron and clay. Right, so the weakest of all governments, Daniel said, would exist in this broken state, the state of the feet of the image. And it's happened. And as we said earlier, we, we, we could spend all, all afternoon on this, this one prophecy, but we don't have time to do it. We want to look at other things. A Roman element would mingle with this weak government in the latter days, Daniel says. And so it does. We can see there's something left of Rome in the world today, in Europe. It is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. So there's just one example. We call that a framework prophecy. A prophecy where uh, the Bible foretold way, way into the future what is going to happen. And ultimately, of course, the important part about this particular uh, prophecy is that it's in the days of the feet that God would re-establish his kingdom on the earth. We read in Daniel 2 and verse 45, From much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out, and the stone represents Jesus, he tells us, tells us so in the, in the Gospels, it was cut out of the mountain without hands, no human uh, uh, involvement here, it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, and has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And as we're looking at this morning, the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. And of course it's, it's in the preceding verse that we read, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And that's what we are waiting for now, isn't it? The, the bulk of this prophecy has now history, but that's what we are waiting for, the God of heaven setting up this kingdom that will never be destroyed. Well, that's one type of prophecy. Another type of prophecy relates to the nation of Israel, and that's why we read that chapter in Isaiah, or part of Isaiah 43. I don't know if you noticed that it begins... Talking about Israel, this is about Israel. Israel are God's witnesses to the nations. And we put four headings at the top of the screen there. A date when the prophecy was given, the reference, what happened and when it was fulfilled. And again, we're going to just skim through this. Is it Moses said back in 1500 BCE, that the Jews will be scattered worldwide, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And it happened in AD 70. Moses also said that the Jews will be persecuted worldwide. And they have been from AD 70 roughly down to 1948. And again, we could spend all, all afternoon on, on this particular subject. Jeremiah prophesied the time would come when the Jews would return, not just return anywhere, but return to their ancient homeland. And again, it, the history is amazing. You know, Britain tried to find a home for the Jews in, in Africa, but they said, no, we're going back to our ancient homeland. 
and, and it's happened according to Bible prophecy. Not only the, the, the nation of Israel, but the land of Israel. You see, Ezekiel said that while Israel were scattered, the land would be desolate. It would enjoy its Sabbaths. That when they went back, the land would be fruitful. And again, it's happened. We can see these things happening before our very eyes. There's no gainsaying these prophecies, really, is there? How about this one? The prophet said that when the Jews returned to their ancient homeland, it would cause a big, big problem. And look at the Middle East today, the Jew-Arab situation. You see, it's happened. This is happening before our very eyes. You see, sometimes the critics say, oh, it was all written after the events. But you can't say that, can you? It's happening now. It's being fulfilled now uh, before our very eyes. And it was Zechariah who said that the Jews returning will be a sign of Jesus' return. And that, of course, takes us into the future. We must ask the question, what is the purpose of Bible prophecy? Well, first of all, let's say what Bible prophecy is not about. It's not so that we can be clever and say that on such and such a date, something's going to happen. That's not the purpose of Bible prophecy. <coughs> it's not for anyone with just a, a passing curiosity in these things. Bible prophecy is for those who really want to know what God has to tell them. And it's couched in such a way sometimes that unless you really do want to know, you won't find out what the prophecy is saying. But look at an example of that as we go along. You see, the full wonder of Bible prophecy becomes apparent when we compare Scripture with Scripture. You can't just look at one bit on its own. You've got to look at the whole lot. It increases faith in those who really want to know, those who are servants of of the living God. It gives a vision so that we know what's happening. We can see God's purpose unfolding in the earth and that in itself gives confidence in the future. I mean, out there, what confidence have people got in the future? It's beginning to look pretty, pretty bleak, isn't it? When you look at the rulers that different countries have. And yet those who understand Bible prophecy look to the future with absolute confidence. And I suppose the biggest blessing is it helps God's servants to be ready for that great day when Jesus will return to the earth. Now, we know that some prophecy uses symbols. And there is another reason why uh, the Bible is special and unique. You see, you can say a lot using a symbol in just a few words. And again, we'll, we'll look at an example of, or two of that. So that's one reason why the Bible uses symbols. But as we mentioned already, effort is required to find out what the meaning of the symbol is. And the only way to do that is to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so we say that 
those not prepared to make the effort will never understand the meaning of the symbol or the prophecy either. Jesus said it was the same reason that he spoke in parables. He says, so that they understand and they don't. Those who really want to know, they came to Jesus to ask what the meaning of the parable was and they found out. Others just went away and thought, oh, that's a nice story, isn't it? But, but they never got any further than that. Right, let's just look at one example of this then. And it's in the book of Revelation. John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Perhaps we can turn to Revelation, can we, in chapter 16. Because this is a fantastic prophecy, really. Only intelligible when we begin to understand what the symbols are all about. So we're looking at Revelation 16 and verse 13. Uh, where John says, I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. And we can't really look at what they mean. We don't have time to do that. Verse 14 says, They are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. This, this, is, this is exciting. It's exciting, but it's it's... Serious stuff as well, is it not? The battle of the great day of God Almighty. And it's these unclean spirits that are gathering the nations to that. Well, let's try and sort out what it means, shall we? Uh, stage by stage. First of all, what is an unclean spirit? Why? We compare scripture with scripture, don't we? Is it? Paul said to Timothy, In the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Talking about the same thing, really. So a spirit is a doctrine or a teaching. Uh, we see that in that verse as well. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So John is saying there, don't believe everything that you hear. Test it against scripture, what, people, what the prophets are saying, and then you will find out. So that's, that's what these spirits are. We could say, John saw three unclean teachings like frogs. We say, frogs? What, where else do we need to know about frogs in the Bible? Well, let's turn to the book of Exodus, shall we? I mean, we don't read much about frogs in the Bible, but I suppose it's in the book of Exodus in chapter 8 that we read more about frogs than anywhere else. So we're going to Exodus chapter 8, and what I'll do, I'll put on the screen what we're trying to pick out. Frogs in Exodus chapter 8. First of all, if you look at verse 3, these frogs in Egypt, are going to get everywhere. The river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go into thine house, into thy bedchamber, into thy bed, upon the bed of, uh, upon the bed of all thy servants, and upon thy people, in thine ovens, in thy need, they're everywhere. So that's point number one that we need to just took in the back of our minds. These frogs in Egypt, they got everywhere. 
verse 4, they affect everyone from the king downwards. They shall come upon both thee, that's Pharaoh the king, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. So it's not just uh, the people that are involved in this, the kings are involved as well, the king. Uh, if we go down to verse 8, when these frogs came, Pharaoh promised liberty to the children of Israel. It was a false promise, but it was a promise. Uh, verse 8, Pharaoh called for the Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. So that, that's another thing. Uh, this promise of liberty was given. If we drop down to verse 14, this is when the frogs, they weren't taken away, they were killed, and the people had to do something with them. And it says, they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. They gathered them together. Just keep that at the back. We'll keep them on the screen so that we can see. And they gathered them in heaps. We read there in verse 14. Now, if we go back to Revelation 16, and just pick out the similarities that we've got here. And this is what the Bible calls prophecy by similitude. Uh, the prophet Hosea mentions that. Making similar things uh, stand out in, in the different prophecies. So in Revelation 16, did the frogs, do the frogs get everywhere? Revelation 16 and verse 14, we read, They go to the kings of the earth and the whole world. Well, you can't get much more everywhere than that, can you? They come to the kings of the earth and the whole world. So that's, that's one link. You might say, well, it's just one link, isn't it? One link on its own doesn't mean very much, really. But that's not the end of it. Will they affect the king and the people? Yes, that's what verse 14 is saying. To gather them, uh, it goes forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world. So, yet yeah, there's another link. We're saying, this, getting a bit interesting, this is. Um if we drop down to verse 14, well, we're in verse 14 anyway, and also verse 16, it's perhaps best in verse 16, he gathered them together. Now that phrase is the exact same phrase that we've got in Exodus chapter 8. They gathered them together. And where did they gather them? They gathered them in heaps. Right, verse 16 of Revelation 16 says they gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon and we say what does Armageddon mean in the Hebrew tongue not in English or anything else but in the Hebrew tongue we know what it means it means a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment and we say now we've got four links between these two passages. And so we say, well, yeah, there's got to be a link here, hasn't there? Um, we say, well, can these unclean spirits like frogs be seen today? And is there a promise of liberty 
being given. And yes, there is. Here we've got a tapestry which is on display in in Reims, in France. And if we look on this, it's a tapestry showing the early kings of the French nation. And what do we see? See on that banner? Frogs. And it's three frogs. There's another banner. Three frogs. Uh, all these little links are pointing us in a direction. Right, there's another one. Three frogs. Not quite so easy to see the third one on that. But so we say, what's France got to do with it? What's France got to do with these unclean teachings? History books. In a political sense, it is proper to date the age in which we live from the French Revolution. The shock carried by that revolution and the spread of its principles have re produced repercussions ever since, and they will continue today whenever people claim the rights of national determination and equality before the law. It would little by little spread over the whole world. Well, the prophecy was telling us that. Now the history book's telling us the same thing. So these unclean spirits like frogs, we can link with the nation of France and what happened in France, the French Revolution, and many history books will tell us exactly the same thing. The age in which we live has been affected largely by the French Revolution. And what were the slogans of the French Revolution? Liberty, equality and fraternity. A false promise of liberty, equality and fraternity. <coughs> and that's what we are seeing in the world today. You see, the age in which we live is dominated by the thinking of the French Revolution. And that revolution caused revolutions all over the world. And the teachings are evident today. We could sum it up in one word, really. Humanism. You see, it's the religion of humanism that we have in the world today. And that's also prophesied in the book of Revelation, that there will be a change in religion to humanism. And eventually there will be a change in religion to the two true teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might say, well, why is it so complicated to understand? You know, why not just say, in the last days, exactly what would happen? We've already mentioned the reason for that. So that those who want to do a bit of digging in Scripture will find out, and those who don't will not find out. So we, can, we begin to see that what is happening in the world today is foretold here, and furthermore, it's telling us that eventually these teachings, these ideas, will gather the nations to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in power and in glory. So, remember what we said about symbols. <coughs> you see, just that one phrase, unclean spirits like frogs, actually describes the world in which we live today. But we can only find out that's out by doing this uh, digging around in Scripture and comparing Scripture with Scripture. We have to make effort. And those who are not prepared to make the effort will never understand it. Uh, it's divine wisdom that we see here 
God is making sure that those who really want to know will find out, as it was for the disciples in the days of Jesus. We read here, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honour of kings is to search out a matter. And that is what we have to do, we have to search out a matter. We, we make the point here, it doesn't say the honour of kings is to find all the answers, because we shall never find all the answers in, in God's book, but we are expected to make effort to, to find out as much as we can from these amazing things. So what we're saying here is, this is a warning before the return of Jesus, the unclean teachings of humanism will be seen everywhere. And again, if we had the time, we could show that that is indeed the case. We say next, some prophecies which show Jesus will soon return have a clear and easy meaning to understand. They're not all complicated like that one. Let's look at one or two examples, shall we? did mention this morning 32 signs that Jesus will soon be back in the earth. You'll be glad to know we're not going to look at all 32 of them. We're just going to pick out one or two. How about, for example, that one? You see, Daniel said, at the time of the end, there would be an increase in knowledge. Now, there's a philosopher in America by the name of Richard Buckminster Fuller he has produced what he calls a knowledge doubling curve. How he did it, I don't know. But it's just making the point here that there has been an increase in knowledge. He said until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. After World War II, it was doubling every 25 years. Now, he says, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. And IBM will tell us that soon it will be doubling every 12 hours. And we say, is human knowledge increasing? It's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, he might have some of his figures wrong there, but there's no doubt about it that human knowledge is increasing at an amazing rate. Uh, there's the verse in Daniel 12, Knowledge shall be increased. These are just four words. And it's so evident in the world today, isn't it? There's another verse in the New Testament which speaks about it. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can learn about anything and everything, but not the truth, because truth has been destroyed. See, there's a book, The Death of Truth. You see, there is no truth in the world today. And it means everyone can do exactly what they want. They can have their truth. Well, there's one example. Let's just go back to our list. Daniel said in the same verse that there will be an increase in travel. What he actually said was, men shall run to and fro. And we say, has there been an increase in travel uh, in recent years. Well, this is Daily Telegraph. Speaks about the world's busiest airports. The busiest of all the airports in the world is Hartsfield Jackson in Atlanta. 
it deals with 104 million passengers every year. Right, and then we've got Beijing and, and London Heathrow is, what, number seven. It just deals with a mere 75 million passengers every year. Well, let's, let's just extrapolate this out a bit, shall we? That means every day, that busiest airport deals with 285,000 passengers every day. Let's translate it to hours, shall we? 11,872 passengers every hour, one airport. If we total up those 10 airports, what we see is that every minute we've got 1,500 people getting on and off aeroplanes. And that's just air travel, isn't it? And that's just 10 airports. There are 17,000 commercial airports worldwide. And then there's train travel, and coach travel, and car travel. You see, it, it stares us in the face, does it not? Yes, there has been an increase in travel. Because I mentioned it earlier on, my grandparents, for their summer holidays, used to cycle eight miles from Nottingham. And that was their summer holiday. Eight miles, and then eight miles back. And look what's happening now. I mean, there's the, the, there's the verse Daniel was told to seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. They've got a map just showing domestic routes in USA and Canada. So there's another simple example of where the Bible is predicting what is happening in the world today. Well, if we move to the other side of this chart, number five, we've got there, preparations for war. Here's the US federal budget for this year. Right, you can't see all the details, but I've just highlighted they spend on agriculture 1.7% of the federal budget. On defence, they spend 54.5%. That's got to change. Because the Bible tells us men will beat their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But it's an example, isn't it? How about how much America is spending on warfare? What about the other big power? You see, that, that's Newsweek. Putin is preparing for World War Three. Yes, there will be preparations for war, the Bible said, before Jesus returned. One or two examples here. This is The Economist reporting... August last year. Russia's biggest war game in Europe since the Cold War alarms NATO. Some fear it involved at least 100,000 troops. But it wasn't just a war game. You see, normally when they, they have these war games, when it's all over, the, the troops all go home. But not so with Russia. The Express here tells us that the Russian troops always stay when they have a war game, the troops stay in position. And we read headlines like this. China and Russia have set a nuclear collision course with the US. Or how about this one? 
the biggest bomb in the history of the world. They call it Big Ivan. 1400 times more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Nagasaki and Hiroshima put together. One bomb. And this is what the nations, they are indeed preparing war as the Bible said they would. Well, let's look at one more example. We say here, earthquake threat in Israel and worldwide. And that's report, recorded for us. Perhaps we can turn to Ezekiel 38, can we? And again, we can only just dip into the prophecy. Ezekiel 38. And this chapter foretells the Russian hosts invading the land of Israel. And verse 18 says, It shall come to pass at the same time when Go shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come upon my face, in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And the prophet here is describing an earthquake. It says, All men shall shake at my presence, part way through verse 20. And if we look at the end of the prophecy, verse 23, God says, Thus will I magnify myself, and sanctify myself, I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's Ezekiel's refrain. They shall know that there is a God in Israel, and he is in control of all things. Now, this becomes interesting when we compare Scripture with Scripture again, because we'll put it on the screen this time, Zechariah 14. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and the west. There shall be a very great valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half it toward the... This is very specific, isn't it? When this earthquake takes place, the Mount of Olives is going to split in the middle. There's going to be a big valley. Half the mountain moves north and half it moves south. Well, this does become interesting because here we've got a section of a map produced by Israel, the survey of Israel, and all the black lines on the map show the fault lines around Jerusalem. You can just about pick out Jerusalem in the midst of all those black lines. There's a fault line there, look, that runs right through Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. And we say, how did the prophet know that the Mount of Olives was going to split in the middle. Would it not the fact that he was told that by the God who is in control of all things, the God who knows the end from the beginning? They worried about this in Israel. They're just one quote back in 2008. If a quake hits between 8am and 1pm, a whole generation will be lost, they say, because they've discovered the other primary schools are built directly on this fault line. And it's an issue which comes up in, in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, regularly. What are we going to do when the earth... They know there's a big earthquake coming, and Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives has been subject to earthquakes uh, down the ages on many occasions. And they know that there's a big one coming. 
But it's not that particular fault line that worries us so much. That's bad enough anyway. But here we've got another fault line. That particular fault line is known as the Great Rift Valley. It starts down in Africa and it goes right the way up through Israel, up the Jordan Valley into Turkey. And that surely is the one that's going to make all flesh shake at God's presence. Let's translate this into a map of the world now. And there's a map that shows all the major fault lines. And the one that runs through the Mount of Olives it is one of those. All flesh will shake at God's presence. So just to draw our thoughts together. We've looked at that, those verses in Revelation 16. Behold, I come as a thief, says Jesus. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments. And that's another thing that runs through Scripture, isn't it? Beginning in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. This heap of sheaves in the valley for judgment. We read uh, verse 18. There were voices and thunders and lightnings. There was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the face of the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. This is the greatest earthquake of all times, the prophecy is telling us. And it will be a physical earthquake, a political earthquake, and a religious earthquake, all at the same time. And... The result of that will be, of course, the, the establishment of, of God's kingdom on the earth. Well, just in conclusion, let's turn. Let's look at Revelation. Sorry, Luke chapter twenty-one. We've been there already today, um, where Jesus says, "Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth." It will happen suddenly and unexpectedly. Jesus says, Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. And we pray, don't we, that we might be able to do that, that we too might look carefully at these prophecies to find out what God is telling us in his book so that when Jesus does come, we will be ready for him.